Hi, welcome to the Awkward Angler Podcast, an authentic series talking about fishing, social justice, and storytelling with folks within the outdoor industry. I'm your host, Erica Nelson. My pronouns are she and her. I'm a self-taught angler that is passionate about sharing my learning journey. I am also a brown folks fishing ambassador and organizational leadership developer with incredible amounts of optimism. Understanding that we all have something to learn from each other, this podcast is for the aspiring, the beginner, the mediocre, and the expert angler willing to learn new skills and how to be a better ally. Working through hard conversations can definitely get a little awkward. We fumble through them and worry about getting it right. It's time to step out of your comfort zone and start getting awkward. This show is for mature audiences. Be sure to follow for updates on awkwardangler.com and on Instagram at awkwardangler. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner Patricia Chow Nguyen to discuss her 15 years in this industry and how it's evolved. We also get to hear about her first experiences fly fishing in October 2020. Patricia brings great insight as an Asian American that has also immersed herself in Native American studies. We cover important topics on gender diversity, decolonization, as well as complexity in representation. We also talk about our personal journeys coming into our own comfort with our own race. This is important for all folks, especially those that are working on their anti-racist journey, to hear a different perspective, whether you're an individual or an organization. My name is Patricia Jiaomuang. Um, I like to start with like my identifiers just to give some folks some context. So I identify as a second gen Vietnamese American daughter of refugees, first grandchild born in the U.S. So you can imagine what that's like. Um, I am originally from California, but home is sort of an interesting concept. So I find it in the places with the people that I serve more so now. Uh, that's that's me. I'm also like a nerd and a geek uh, by by nature. And um, so it, it made it really easy for me to actually work in higher education. So in terms of what I do for work, I serve as a diversity practitioner in higher education uh, right now with UCLA, but spent uh, quite a few years across the country uh, opening up diversity-based programs, mostly uh, in response to like student protests and demands. But mm-hmm. I'd say yeah, like making space for people that like making change. And uh, I guess that's who I would be. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing all of, all of that. That's really important. And I really like bringing, you know, talking about our identities because it really just brings all of that into conversation and our work and things that we do. So um, thanks for laying that foundation for us. <laughs> First, how we met. So uh, I was originally living in LA in September uh, with my partner, Ryan, which of you know. And so given sort of the way the pandemic was going, and I will say this, I have the privilege of working remotely. Um, We were trying to explore potential options um, to potentially get out of LA. And so one of the places that we decided to go was Crested Butte, where a special someone lives. And so uh, as Ryan uh, was settling sort of in Crested Butte, we were looking at ways for him to sort of create new work and just stay, you know, um, creative in these spaces and times where it's like really, really challenging. And so uh, give it to social media. He put a call out on Facebook to do some portraits of people that like mountain bike ride or fly fish and stuff like that. 
And, you know, I always ask him, like, you know, who's going to meet up with to, to do some work. And then one day he's like, oh, I'm meeting with um, a woman and she's a fly fisher. I was like, say what? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, this is interesting. Because at that point, um, I'd say fly fishing had been something that I feel like I romanticized, but never thought it was like for me, mm -hmm. you know, like it was something that I'd watched, you know, my partner do. And I think I was like, already just happy just being outside and I'm like oh cool like someone's having fun doing this I can just sit here and read a book so it was sort of like a say what moment because it was the first time I had heard about a woman fly fishing you know and, and he was gonna go to shoot with so of course in my like student oriented self I do my research and then I realized that this person was someone that was pushing like diversity and equity work in this space and I was like oh my gosh this is even better now and so I like actually begged Ryan if I could just like tag along <laughs> to the photo shoot with you Erica and then I was like you know what I don't need to act like this I should just like contact her <laughs> just, just contact her and you know so I wrote you an email and I was like you know maybe this is a chance for me to like give this a try like who knows and I'm you know very very aware of how you know every day goes with people so I actually tried to pay Erica to be a guy for me and she's like no and so we just went out I was like a photo assistant so that's why all those amazing pictures of Erica I was pulling the reflector in the water um, but then we got to just have this moment, Erica, which I really appreciated where you literally just put a rod in my hand and like, let's just do this. And I'm yeah. like, wait, are you supposed to tell me all these things? And you're like, no, <laughs> <Just get water. laughs> it's just super empowering, you know, to have that. And so I think it was like so important for me in that moment to have this thing that I realized I romanticized and felt was inaccessible mm -hmm. because of the way representation is in the field. And you just like, turn that upside down for me and actually made it accessible to me like directly, you know, not just by you being you, but like you literally like, here's my rod. <laughs> it's like, do it, you know? So yeah, I'd say empowering is probably the word I would describe our first mm -hmm. experience. I mean, I didn't catch anything. Now I look back, I'm like, that was like, probably the most terrible day to go do this. It was super windy. Right? <laughs> it was, yeah. I don't even want to tie anything, you know, we knew to get waiters. Thank you. Yeah. But um, and then we find out later, like you started me on nymphing, right? Which yeah. I'm, I have no context for yeah. until now. I'm like, oh, this makes more sense now. Yeah. <laughs> Your partner, Ryan, um, just put out this awesome magazine on his website. So pictures are beautiful. Um, and he's got a funny photo of me um, missing a fish where I'm like screaming slash laughing. And so it's <laughs> that was such a good day. <laughs> Yeah, and it was just much fun. Like, it, it just felt like, yeah, just good energy all around, even though we didn't catch anything. Well, you did. Yeah, well, almost. almost. <laughs> I caught it. I didn't, like, land it. <laughs> so have you been getting out fishing so far? It seems like you, you, have, you know, you have. So tell me about that experience. Yeah, so after Crestview, I moved to Bend, Oregon, and I think the university conspired because I didn't realize that we'd have, like, a house that's right on the Deschutes, like, mm -hmm. literally, like, can walk 20 feet outside the store right now. Yeah. And so I've definitely gone out. Um, I actually didn't, like, try looking anything up. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to recall what Erica said, and then I went, I'm like, wait, I don't know how to tie anything. <laughs> <laughs> And so uh took a stab at like trying to look at YouTube and actually, you know, called you and like this is a lot. <laughs> this is yeah. a lot of people that don't look like me. Um but yeah, I've gone out a couple times. 
And I've had good days and bad days. I had my first fish on experience, which was so exciting. Like I had no idea like that kind of like adrenaline that you just sense. And like, you realize that you are connecting with something in the water Mm -hmm. and yeah, that was just like an amazing moment. But then the next day I caught like three logs. So, and <laughs> like snap. <laughs> so I've gone out, I've tried to go out like at least twice a week um, okay. lately. Uh, and I find myself actually a little bit more indignant when I go into fly shops now. Like, I'm like, I am here because I want to go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> usually I'll go with like my partner or someone else. And I feel like they think I'm like, they're shopping for a good gift or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I got a shout out to Hook and Fly here in Sun River. They've been awesome in terms of helping me figure things out. And there's like no judgment or like, you know, masculinity (laughs) back in the conversations. Yeah. Yeah. The people working and that are so inclusive and welcoming make a huge difference, you know, in setting the tone of like that non-judgmental tone, you know? So it's just, you're able to be relaxed and ask the questions and not be afraid to look dumb. Whereas I've been in some fly shops that are just so so bro you know and like <laughs> judgmental and like you don't know you know anyway so that's really good to hear that you found a good shot <laughs> yeah yeah Sweet. awesome so what are your first impressions of the fly fishing like industry now that you're like an angler I don't know I think I had a very interesting entry right mm-hmm. like it was first through I think in my younger days it just felt like something unattainable you know my, my family's pretty outdoorsy, so we'd go on, like, family trips, and my, my job was actually to get the flyers from, like, the rest stops and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, and as someone that loves both the mountains and the water, I felt like rivers could be the place, but I just never saw anyone that looked like me, so at that mm-hmm. point, it just felt like I didn't pay attention to it at all, mm-hmm. and then when Ryan got back into it, you know, I'd go with him to fly shops, but again, didn't feel like it was like for me. But then after meeting you, I got admit the online community for <laughs> anglers has been like super supportive. Yeah. And um, it's been super nice to connect with like other women and other people of color. And everyone just seems all about just sharing the stoke, right? Like just yeah. really like good for you. It's all good. Like, don't worry. So entry into like the sport has been like really, really awesome, you know, in terms of having folks like you, Erica, and all the other folks that you're interviewing that I've gotten to know also via online and maybe by virtue of it's a silver lining of like this pandemic, right? Like we're all connecting via online. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say the industry itself, I, I guess I get some insider knowledge because of you, Erica, but like, you know, I actually want to go try I started like looking for waiters right online you know and I'm like oh man like how do I even do this and then you realize how much of the industry is still trying to change you mm-hmm. know like you know I, I give a shout out to a lot of the ones that are including more women mm-hmm. I hope to see more people of color in <laughs> it soon but that's been like an interesting exercise like looking for this waiter option and, and getting to know the industry a bit more but everyone I've written actually has been very open, you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of like trying to help me find what I need. So from the industry to the people, it's been a really positive experience, actually, which has been surprising. Yeah, Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I've noticed in a lot of the outdoor industry, and I don't know if this is in higher education or other profession work that you've worked in, but a lot of companies will focus on women first, like gender diversity, um, you know, which is pretty binary and, you know, they pat themselves on the back. Even in 2020, right, when we look at the outdoor industry and how um, when we 
think about diversity and inclusion, it's literally like, oh, but we have women. And then when you look at the women, it's only white women, <laughs> you know? And I so mean, for lack of words, I hate to say this, and maybe this is the awkward piece. I think people are just lazy. Right? <laughs> it's just like, okay, let's diversify. So I see a room of all men. The easiest way for me to do this is, well, at home I have a wife, I guess, or like women in my social circle, because that's been proven, right? The New York Times has shown that white folks mostly have friends with only white people, mm -hmm. right? More so than other people of color. So I figured that like, when I think about businesses or industries, they're gonna go to what's like accessible to them, right? Mm -hmm. Which are probably white women at that point, you know? So right. I guess that's awkward to say like, maybe you're just being lazy with your diversity efforts at first. No, <laughs> I completely agree with that. And I am pretty blunt about that, especially when I'm consulting with other folks in the outdoor industry. And why can't we start off and kick off these new events in 2020 where everyone is celebrated, you know, like all different um, ethnicities and, you know, backgrounds and cultures and non-binary folks, you know, and I get that we need a space, like women specifically need our own affinity space, um, but there's so much diversity within that context as well. So anyway. No, for, for sure. And I, I just really wonder if it's like, I'm, if I assume best attention, I'm just hoping it's because there's some fear and like offending, right? Like maybe that's like partly it. Um, when I think about malintention, I think about money in the whole thing, right? Yeah. So, you know, like who has spending power, who doesn't, you know, maybe businesses are making choices based on, you know, what is the potential revenue if they go down this route, you know, and, you know, historically people have thought people of color don't have as much money, right? Because we don't have as much wealth built over time. Mm -hmm. So that's like my malintent side, but I'd like to think more of the other, like maybe you just don't feel like you have access and you don't know how to, you know, yeah. is where I have to go for my to be able to sleep. Yes. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. I definitely deal with that. You know, as when people are actually thinking beyond just the one demographic um, and starting to think, then they're like, oh, I actually don't know. I am lazy and I can accept that. But now I don't want to be lazy, but I don't know how to approach. And yeah. Like, and it's hard to, because it's so layered, right? Because even the way our society looks at emotion and communication, that's all rooted in whiteness too. You know, when I, when people say like, ask me about the work I do, I said the most exhausting part is code switching. Mm. Right? Like I've been brought up a certain way to communicate. Like confrontation may not be an issue for me, right? Emoting may not be an issue, but I'm working in a white centered system where mm. I have to be more polite. You know, I have to watch how I emote, you know? So that's, that's hard because I think for a true change around this stuff, you do need a diversity of communication styles too. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I bet you you face that as a consultant, right? Don't, don't oh, you yeah. feel like more white when you speak sometimes in these things. Yeah, yeah. For those of you that aren't familiar with um, code switching, would you mind giving a, a little overview? Yeah, so code switching means that you are communicating based on the context you're in, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we may change our communication styles based on the atmosphere and the environment and the people that we're working with. So one example is that often that people already know that they code switch is like how you talk with your family versus how you talk with your coworkers, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's a code switch. That's very simple. But for people of color, it may be, I sound very different when I talk to a whole Vietnamese kind of community or with, when I'm within a queer community or, or I'm in a boardroom of a foundation, right? Mm -hmm. I can sound very different in those spaces, even though I, I know in my head, I'm saying the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you. That was very beautifully put. 
Um, so yeah, let's talk about um, what does a diversity practitioner do? What does your line of work look like? Because I'm more in the outdoor industry and you're in education, yeah. but there's definitely some similarities. So I'm curious to hear more about your, your line of work. Yeah, so I, I don't know if anyone ever grows up saying they're gonna be a diversity person. You know, like I think so many of us just like fall into this. And I'll put this caveat. When people always ask me this, like, how have you gone in this industry and worked in it for 15 years? Mm. And then I think about my start, and I hope this will change in the future. But most of my peers that I know are in this work because they had a very negative experience of some sort, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the catalyst to get someone to recommit themselves in their career around this stuff has unfortunately have a lot of origin stories about facing some sort of discrimination, prejudice, or anything around that. So when I think about this field and what it means for me in education, you know, we can do this work from any vantage point, right? You're doing it in outdoors. I'm doing it in education. There's so many places. And then even within the industry, right? You could be on the front lines protesting or you can be in the boardroom making change, right? Like there's so many different vantage points of doing this. And I I figure for me to be my authentic self, I had to figure out what that was for me. Mm -hmm. And I think ideally education, even though it's another institution of oppression, potentially it is in a lot of ways, it also has a virtue to its future, right? Of wanting to educate others for the common good. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I can live with that. I can live with that. And um, so what it means for me to be a diversity practitioner now is to really pull on the value of education as potentially being a tool of social change to make change, mm. right? So the work that I do is working within an education system, using the knowledges that are created there and the people that are receiving that um, to broaden the perspectives around what does this do to actually then um, work towards social justice. Mm-hmm. So I literally create spaces in education for people to have those kind of conversations for themselves, like in the classroom and then outside. So mm-hmm. some people think it's like HR, which I say it's like, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's not HR because I'm going beyond representation, right? I'm really thinking about how do we create spaces where everyone feels included. I think the HR thing is not a bad thing to right. angle from, but I worry because I think HR is also seen as like punitive and investigatory, right? right? Where the, the full breadth of like diversity equity work is also how to create authenticity and people to be them, not just to punish them, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe it, my very like narrow view of HR. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it gets siloed. I've seen instead of everyone in the organization taking responsibility, you know, I feel like diversity and inclusion is literally everybody's job from the top of the top to you know, line level staff, it is so important in how we do our practices and hiring, recruiting, marketing, you know, everything. So yeah, I wish, I, my hope is that it will no longer be siloed. <laughs> and that's what I typically- yeah, like definitely we're all like trying to work ourselves out of a job, right? Like I don't want to exist, right? right? Like we're all like, trying to be people that won't exist, right? Like I, I hope like companies don't need like a chief diversity officer at some point because it's just so infused. Right. But Honestly, like systematic racism is built so well. So like, I guess my job security is pretty good you know, for, for me. I'm like, so sad to say. What have you seen in your 15 years? Yeah, I mean, this work has been going on for so long, right? It just has come under so many different names. And that's, that's also exhausting, right? Like, in terms of like how many times we have to change what this work is labeled to make sure that people do it, right? So like, um, I feel like I'm in that in-between generation of the people that really carve the work. And at that point, it was really about um, compliance, but also like multiculturalism, right? Like that, those pictures of like all those hands holding each other. That's, you know, <laughs> it drives me nuts, but I have to like 
check myself. I'm like, this is the origins of where we came from, right? We had to come from like these hand holding fists kind of pictures. And then now there's like this new kind of like rise of DE and I work. And I was sort of brought up in between those two, right? So um, what does this work look like? I'm so glad we're outside of that tolerance conversation. I'm really glad we're outside of that like, kumbaya, we should all belong together, hold hands, eat each other's food, see each other's clothes. Like, I'm so glad, like, we're beyond that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think I got put in this industry at a really interesting time when things like affirmative action were really on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were legal statutes that were being placed in higher education to not thinking about addressing you know racism in very direct ways like through like things like affirmative action mm -hmm. and now we're sort of like in this space where like everyone's trying to do it which you know, like is like affirming but like wow this took so long to get here yeah so i feel like the industry has changed or this work has changed so much from being compliance to now like let's reimagine possibilities for everything Mm -hmm. And that you're actually behind now if you're not doing this work, which is a great kind of space to be in terms of that industry. Mm -hmm. um, but the one thing I would say that bothers me most that we still haven't gotten out of, and I think it's like changing right now, is oftentimes when we looked at helping non-white people, it was because they were like in trouble. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were in need and they were in the deficit always. So I'm glad that's also changing because I think that's where we're, we're sort of in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, that affects a lot of industries. Like I think about all the grants people have to write that talk about people of color in such like not affirming ways, right? So they can land grant money for their nonprofit. Right. Or like universities have to say that like people of color are not graduating or getting the right grade so they can get more grant money to get more people in. Mm -hmm. So sort of excited for us to like move out of that but we're still like in it mm -hmm. oh yeah I'm still yeah. seeing like the checkbox mentality um you know of that like you know foundational grant writing okay we meet the checkboxes and now we can be rewarded you know get this pat on the back you know and I'm seeing that um in my line of work in the outdoor industry of you know it's so far behind of you know instead of looking at the possibilities and including everyone and expanding that reward bandwidth it's still on that like oh, but we have women now in leadership and we're including them in our gear, you know? Um, but it's like, it's so slow moving, but I guess that's just kind of the nature of our human evolution. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, you illustrate like a point that I have a lot in this industry. Like we stop with representation. Mm -hmm. right? Like we think, and even then it's like a hard fight to get the representation. And people think once they've gotten it, because this has been a challenge in higher education, it's like, well, a campus like UCLA is super diverse. I'm like, it doesn't mean the campus climate feels safe. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you don't create structures that allow the diversity to interact and feel authentic, then what do you have then? You just have a bunch of people, mm -hmm. but they're not interacting. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I always think, I always get the, well, we invite people, but they, we invite women of color, but they just don't come to our women's groups. And it's like, oh, like <laughs> the space is so not safe and welcoming. I always kind of like to look at it of um, a white woman standing in front of her haunted house and be like, come on in, it's fun. And you're like, I'm like on the sidewalk of like, you don't look like fun whatsoever. Like, I don't feel safe with, no thanks. <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna keep walking. <laughs> And what you just said, right? It's always inviting it to our space, right? It's never like a new space. It's right. always like come into this space that's been historically white. Yes. Right? And help me change it, right? Instead of like, why don't we just like 
your space isn't working. <laughs> Can we just like create a new space? You know, you have um, mentioned the term anti-settlerism. Um, let's talk about that. What What do you mean by anti-settlerism? I think I need to go back one before that because okay. I think the anti um, like settler colonialism needs like some scaffolding <laughs> to get there. Um, so maybe I'll just share like how I even got here because I think it's like an interesting entry. And mm -hmm. um, so uh, my current work, I do a lot of work with alumni actually, you know, college students I've already graduated. And in some ways, you know, a lot of alumni of color want to come back because they want to give back to the students that look like them because they had like a terrible experience, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I was like pursuing this like kind of research around giving, like what does giving mean? Because the way our universities are looking at this, it's coming from a very like white centric model of philanthropy, right? Which means like, I give sort of like, because it makes me feel good. I give because it offers me, you know, a way to give back to my community in a way that works for me. And it's usually monetary. So <clears throat> I found out like a lot of higher education aren't talking to people of color when it comes to giving because it doesn't fit the normal, the normalcy of giving. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided to actually pursue what this meant for Native American alumni. Mm -hmm. That was like my original question, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what does giving mean, right? And there's like bad stereotypes, like the Indian giver, like that whole concept and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I sort of wanted to unpack that for like myself in terms of the work that I did. Mm -hmm. And I also chose the Native American population because when it came to data, they were like rendered invisible, right? Mm -hmm. Because we think about college attainment within this community and who's going to particularly elite schools, elite schools like UCLA, that representation number is there. There's barely like a percent, right? Mm -hmm. So they were just being forgotten out of like, as me as a diversity practitioner, mm -hmm. they weren't showing up in the work a lot. And so I feel like I needed to take some proactive efforts to do this. So long story short, when I got into this research project, I really had to think about my own positionality because mm -hmm. I'm going into a community that I don't belong to, right? I don't identify with. And I need to understand what my position as like a researcher in particular means doing work with communities that I don't belong. Mm -hmm. You know, like I need to be sensitive to that, particularly if something is diversity work, I need to really, really be sensitive to that. Yeah. And so uh, I actually started taking American Indian courses. And funny story, everyone thought I was Native American because apparently no non-natives take American Indian studies classes. So there's a shout out to folks, take American Indian study courses. They are there for you to learn so you don't have to depend on the emotional labor of like your Native American friends. So I, went in, I think they thought I was like Alaskan Native. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like really in this because I need to like learn how to be a better like accomplice and an ally. Mm -hmm. And in it, I had to actually write a positionality paper. And so that's where this stuff comes from, actually. Mm -hmm. So this is none of, none of this is like my own idea. Mm -hmm. There are some amazing people doing scholarship that is about this, that I think makes us all better. But because it's coming from like, I think Native American scholars, they're just not getting a lot of like light shed mm -hmm. on it. So um, there's where I'd start is like, decolonization like you sort of use that term here already so one thing is and i'm culprit of this i made the mistake a lot you know as you like get into this work and you like live in your activist self you'll hear things from like the third world liberation front and let's decolonize our like you know schools let's decolonize our diet let's decolonize all this and one of the most powerful papers i read was actually from 
um, two people, their names are Tuck and Yang, and they talked about like how decolonization should not be used as a metaphor. <laughs> Mm -hmm. because it really undermines what Native Americans are actually trying to do, mm -hmm. right? Like, they're literally, like, decolonizing as, like, get off the land, right? Like, get out of our culture. Mm -hmm. And then when folks like me or other non-Native folks are using it, we're actually watering down what that movement may mean. Mm -hmm. So when I started realizing that's partly what I was doing when I was using decolonization, it then opened this whole thing about coloners set up like settler colonism, colonization, right? So everyone's sort of familiar with colonization. The settler piece is really talking about how people of color can be complicit, right? White people have done this, right? Like we can be complicit in systems that further marginalize Native American folks, mm -hmm. right? By participating in understanding like I need land or I need this. We're still building on the structures that white settlers and whiteness is creating that are still at the detriment of Native American folk. I'll stop there. So I think for me to be like a true ally, I need to really rethink, you know, the things that I occupy and what, Kind of things that I'm using, particularly, you know, someone that loves the outdoors, I feel like this is even more important, right? Like this land, like who owns it, the whole geotagging stuff, like those are all like forms of colonization, right? <laughs> like, yes. that as a person of color, because we know this stuff is so pervasive that mm -hmm. I'm not complicit, right? Right. So my exercise in terms of understanding what is like anti, like colonial, colon, settler colonism was a a way for me to check myself, honestly. Mm, mm -hmm. and, and the stuff is really complex, right? A lot of it is based on what happened in Hawaii, right? Mm -hmm. And the Kanaka movements and how Asians were sort of forced there as like slaves. But then you would have like your first like Filipino governor that wouldn't believe in sovereignty of the native folks, right? Like that's not okay, <laughs> that's not okay. Mm -hmm. And those are kind of things of me trying to check my mentality in terms of being a good, uh, you know, accomplice, a good ally to Native folks, so. Thank you for elaborating on that because it's awkward and it's very well put, but, you know, of how we got here. Because like, think about it, like the whole outdoor industry, right? You know, I love it because sometimes I feel like these ad campaigns go for like, look at the homesteader, right? Like look at these people that conquered the land, right? And how many of our national parks are misnamed because white people ran into like, Native, like Yosemite, right? The history of the word Yosemite like cracks me up. Yeah. They thought that was the name of the tribe when it literally meant like scary white person, right? Like now our whole park system is named after that. You know, so this is like real, like it's embedded in a lot of stuff that we do. So, right. it's so awkward. It's so, awkward. so when it comes to like, let's say decolonizing, like what does that look like um, in your perspective? Because um, no one really knows what to do. So what would you say to that? Like how do we have a very narrow definition of this now because I want to be like respective of the movements that are around me that also have created space for me right so when I say decolonization at this point it's about sovereignty of our Native American folk and like literally giving land back you know like and giving systems back that we have colonized right and benefit from so that's what I mean when it comes to decolonization. Yes, I know some people will use it in terms of like being woke folks like, okay, go ahead, decolonize your diet. That can be very real, right? Our diets have been colonized. But for me, the definition is very narrow. So like give land back, you know, that's, that's where it is for me. Mm -hmm. um, there, and, and mind you, I, I said at the beginning of this talk that I'm a 
first, like second gen American, right? Mm -hmm. So when I talk about decolonization, it's also from like a very narrow, like American perspective right now. Mm -hmm. Global colonization is real, like super, super real. Mm -hmm. But in the context for me, in terms of how I want to live my life, like I don't want this just to be an exercise of like scholarly research. Like I want to be able to live this. So I need to live it in the context of like the US. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, thank you. I completely align with your definition and those steps. And, you know, it's, it's really uncomfortable. I do try, right? Like when I think about, you know, the movement of wealth, right? So I'm very careful on how I choose to like spend my money, at least like that's, I guess, a small step in decolonization. So if I could, if I had a choice between going out with like a Native American guy for fishing mm -hmm. versus a non-Native, I probably will pick that, you know, because I think that's important, you know, so... But, yeah. yeah, it is uncomfortable to think about like literally what it would mean to give land back mm -hmm. you know, and what that, and even then like the concept of land ownership, right? In a lot of indigenous communities, that's, that's not a concept in some mm -hmm. ways. A lot, like when folks read more, like if you ever read the stuff on the national parks and they've done some good work on this, it's, you know, a lot of Native American communities like moved, like, you know, moved around the country. Like it wasn't like this one place I would block off. If we're to look at someone that, this is maybe the first time hearing about, in, you know, settler colonization, decolonizing, you know, what is that crucial next step to help make change, you know, within ourselves? Because I feel like anti-racist work really starts with the individual first. You know, a lot of us just want to jump to action right away, but really it takes some internalized processing. I don't know if you can align with that and, and, and what are some next steps that people can do internally to start getting on that, that path? Yeah, and unfortunately, I won't like offer a lazy way out of this. So I think um, people need to read. There's some beautiful stuff, and this I want to say this about reading, right? Consider the author taking the time to explain this in a way that is publicly accessible, mm. right? It's, it's like a conversation with an author on your own time. Someone has put in the emotional labor to do this work for you to read. So reading, I would suggest, is a great first step. And I'll give Erica the links to the two that I would really recommend for decolonization and settler colonialism. If you do not read anything, please read like Tuck and Yang's um, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Like that is like the most tangible first step I can give you. I will, I swear it'll like blow your mind just in terms of like, thinking about anti-racism work and how that may relate to actually thinking about our Native American indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Second thing that I would charge you all to do is on that self-reflective piece. Mm -hmm. I mean, in academia, they call them positionality papers, but I think it's super important to understand how you interact with the world. Mm -hmm. And to give you some context, I actually have positionality papers for myself as a self-reflective exercise based on different communities I work in. Mm -hmm. Right. So what was really challenging about this American Indian Studies course is I wrote a positionality paper. Most of my positionality papers can like be like a page. Mm -hmm. This literally was like 10 because I had like so much unpacking to do for myself in terms of like, was my relationship to the land, particularly as an immigrant, as a refugee, as a woman, that someone who loves the outdoors, that wants to be an ally. So all the prompt is really for positionality papers are like, who are you in this world for the work that you're trying to do? Right. right. So just even if it's like just journaling on what that is, writing it and having that conversation with yourself, I think is super important. And there's something about actually writing it because it's like externalized in some form. So those are two steps. Yeah. <laughs> Read uh, and write. Yes. <laughs> that reflection piece. 
you know, it's so key into my, I worked in experiential education. I guess I still technically do. So yeah, that reflection piece is really where the growth and learning comes from. It's like not only taking in information, but also like sitting down and reflecting about it and writing that out can definitely help for sure. So I'm in line with that. <laughs> Some more respect when people come to me after that, right? Like that do that work. Like I feel actually, I feel much more at ease, you know, sitting with someone to do that. Like, you know, some people have come up to me since all this stuff has been happening and they're like, Hey, can I just talk to you about like racism and stuff like that in your experience? And then part of me from the other side is like, okay, do I have the energy to do this? Cause I don't know what I'm going to get. <laughs> like, do I have the energy to hear some really like hard stuff? Right. But if I hear someone's actually reflected on it, it comes through in the questions that oh, yeah. you get. Oh yeah. Like, I think it's cool. Yeah. So you can do your folks a favor, your people of color friends a favor. <laughs> do some homework before you come ask. Always open that answering questions. It's just do a little homework. It helps. It is so refreshing to have folks like you be able to speak to that, you know, or other people that like I don't have to spend that emotional energy um, you know, talking speaking to these issues. And so um highly recommend everyone reading those two articles and really reflecting on them. And that that is literally what how you become a better ally. What are some dangers with people not doing this type of work? Like, I'm sure, uh, we're now, but I'm curious on your thoughts. <laughs> well, one, if you care about your friends, you're going to put them through a lot of emotional stress. If you don't do your homework because we're trying to be nice to you because we care about the friendship, but you're saying some like crazy shit. And I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. Right. So, and I'm like, don't put the emotional burden on me. Like we can share this because I care about you as a friend. Like, I love you, but this is a lot. Like you are like, and you probably unwillingly know that you're like hurting me, but I care about you. So just make sure that there's reciprocity in that. So reading really does with that. Um, the other dangers is voyeurism, right? I think this whole concept of like thinking this one experience that you have yeah. marks all experiences. Yeah. Like the whole like my friend thing, like, oh, I have this black friend, so I understand. Or I'm dating a black person, so I understand. That's sort of like a concept of like voyeurism, right? Or the way we go at that. So I think that's like another danger thing that you start essentializing people to like just you. Like it's sort of selfish right? <laughs> in that way. Yeah, I, I think of companies that are like, we already have black people that work on our staff. And it's like... <laughs> But black people are diverse and they're all in different identity spaces. Some may feel comfortable being a representative of their race. Some may not, <laughs> you know, like yeah. we're also making people static, which is like not cool either. And that really undermines diversity and also intersectionality, right? Yeah. So. so I like what you said, comfort with our own race. Um, Cause it's been a journey for me to be comfortable in my own race. I don't know about you. Have oh, you- real journey for that oh, one yeah. ooh, would you mind talking about that what has your journey been like I mean it's it's been really hard actually like if um in my career I actually was a director for an Asian and Asian American center mm -hmm. and if you had asked my younger self just even of college years all my college friends if I had done that for a living they're like you're who is this person you're speaking about this isn't <laughs> like I I never read Patricia as someone that would like lean into her race like this way mm -hmm. um I think it was a journey because of like, honestly, like racism, right? Like it rendered Asian Americans in ways that I just didn't feel like I related to, you know? Like I hate the like, the first Time Magazine on Asian Americans was like titled The Wiz Kids, right? And I'm like, this is, this is the representation. I didn't relate to it. And then on top of that, you're dealing with people that are also internalizing things that you're unaware of, right? So 
are you Asian enough? You don't speak Vietnamese clean enough. Like, oh, you date non-Asian people. People like throw a ton of shade from your own community because everyone's dealing with their own identity, right? And so I think I wasn't comfortable actually really saying like, I'm this Asian American woman who identifies as Vietnamese like well into my like mid twenties. You know, that's really late if you think about it. Um, from being made fun of when you're like a little kid, like that stupid school, that stuff is real. Like that whole like pulling eyes, like, like that was like real. <laughs> I can't believe how that was. Or like being exoticized when you start dating, right? By like white dudes. Like mm-hmm. there was like so many reasons for me like to not like the color of my skin because of the way I was being treated. Mm-hmm. And then to re take that in and make it mine. That's, that's mm-hmm. been a journey. How about for you, Erica? Oh my gosh, so many similarities. Yeah, I think um, kind of speaking to your identifying with your own race. I remember as a kid, um, we got tribal clothing. It was like a federal um, program. And I remember my white friends getting mad. It was like, oh, you have so much privilege because you got free shoes and a free coat. You know, and I'm like, oh, I, I didn't ask for this. And I don't even know why this program exists. You know, I didn't even know it was a program, you know, until maybe like eight years ago, um, as I've been reflecting about my own acceptance of my own race. But um, yeah, same thing. Of, I was never Navajo enough. I wasn't traditional enough. I didn't speak the language, you know, and I wasn't white enough either for my white friends, you know. But my parents really pushed education, um, you know. And so what I saw was... Well, white people are benefiting more out of the entire system, you know, and they're treated better. So if I act white, then, you know, I'm going to have more access to resources. So, you know, I'm going to be more white. And it was funny that, like, I moved about the world. You know, I used to be called a potato, brown on the outside, white on the inside. (laughs) It worked, because for us, it was like banana, right? So, like, yeah, it's all food, now that I think about it. Yeah, you know, and like, it took me a long time, you know, when somebody would point out, oh, what are you? Are you Asian? Are you Polynesian? You know, and I would always get, are you Hawaiian? I would look in the mirror and I'm like, oh, yeah, I forget that I'm actually not white, you know, because I'm so used to being in these white spaces, you know, and I think that that didn't happen until I was also in my late 20s of really embracing like, coming to a realization of I'm really colonized. I'm really like assimilated to this white culture. What does it look like if I were to embrace my own culture? You know, and it took um, for me personally leaving the Christian religion, you know, and and a belief in God to finally realize like it was really a sad process that I went through. I still think about it. It's like finding out Santa wasn't real. And then all of a sudden that's when I started like on this journey to really reflect and go back and learn my culture and that just opened up so many things of like this is really messed up you know learning more about um boarding schools you know that my you know not only that my mom and her siblings went through but like you know our generation like our ancestors went through so anyway it just opened up this whole world and I think it's really been the passion behind the work that I do now is because like it was a whole process and so I really understand where, you know, I meet another person of color and I'm not always just assuming that their, um, like their process is different, their path is different, you know, um, so it's all over the place. And it's really interesting because whenever companies want to hire people of color, it's like you also don't know their own personal path of accepting their own race. 
Like I've worked in organizations where we've had women of color leaders, but they were so colonized. They were so quote unquote, like in white with white. Yeah. Yeah. So ingrained in white supremacy culture that they ended up doing more harm to people of color, you know, and this was coming from an authority person of color. So there's so much nuance and complexity when we talk about representation and, and bringing in more people of color, because we all have our own freaking journey, <laughs> you know, and, and what we are comfortable with speaking out on and what we're not comfortable speaking out on, you know, so. And I appreciate you saying that because I think that's also, I think, a note to some of folks that are quote unquote like woke, right? Because I think we run into that sometimes that we don't respect each other's processes and we think that they're not down enough or something, but we were all there. You know, like we were all there at one point. I'm pretty sure you and I have made mistakes that yeah. probably were not great, right? But now it, I think the same thing that you just said also offers me a lot of compassion for people that are on this path, right? Like, okay, they're not like doing exactly what you want in terms of being a down activist, but they're on their way, you know? And, and, and also that, that process isn't linear. Right? That's the, the whole thing around, like I think about like, colonized right like we think in very linear ways but this is much more cyclical like there are days I feel like I go through my whole racial identity development in like one day because of like a situation versus like all these years you know so yeah yeah it's it's complex so and then that's what I tell white folks too like this is how racism has hurt you all Mm -hmm. you don't have a sense of an identity journey because it's just everywhere for you you know, for like people of color, we're, we're constantly battling up against instances and have practice, I guess, thinking about ourselves because we may not fit in. Right. For white folks, you just don't have as much like practice, I guess, because you don't have as many negative instances thrown at you to make you reflect, you right. know, so that's also, yeah. Because yeah. I do that as an educator, we do like these like race maps, like how did you come to understand yourself as Asian, right? Like, or like Latino, and like you see these like beautiful maps drawn of like both ugly experiences and positive ones, and they're really complex. Mm-hmm. And then I look at the white participants, and they're very narrow, you know, because they just don't have to think about it in some right. ways. I was thinking about um, when you said exoticized. I also run into that, but also I run into that being Native American as well. So people are always like, we once existed, right? And Uh, we once lived in teepees and it was just so awesome. You know, there's all these movies, Western movies out there, you know, where um, anyway, and now we're like gone. So when people hear that I'm Native American or, you know, indigenous, they're kind of like, wow, like, do you still live in a teepee? You know, and I kind of like get these looks like a mystical unicorn that once existed, like here in the flesh, you know, that they're standing next to. And, you know, for me, like, it's so... Uh, it's it's a lot of labor to have to go through and I typically you know the response is oh well I'm actually part Cherokee <laughs> everyone's like bloodline comes out oh my gosh I was such a bad trend at some point too right and created like structures <laughs> like the quantum rule oh my gosh which is still yeah. happening like yeah yeah <laughs> think about this too like I feel like I have a privilege as an Asian American that I don't have to qualify my ethnicity mm-hmm. right yeah. like that's because of some of the, the bad historical legacies of what the u.s has done to like native american folks like i don't literally have to show and prove that i'm asian in in the ways that i think indigenous communities have to at times because the whole like federally recognized versus not like that's a whole mess too in itself um yeah 
Well, let's actually talk about your Asian American identity because I literally just heard um, that they are now recognized as white. <laughs> Welcome to the hazing of the United States. <laughs> rewarded through capitalism, I swear. Um, you know, Asian American identity is a very complex one. I think that's why it took me so long to get there. I, I do outrightly say I'm Asian American and some people correct me, but they're like, you're Vietnamese. But I'm like, yes. And as you say a lot, you know, <laughs> that this is way more complex that like these racial categories are also arbitrary. Like the census, if you even think about the census, how much the census demographics have changed on what boxes have filled out. This stuff was not like intrinsic in any ways. It was all made up in some ways. The, the bad story around the Asian American kind of identity is it was sort of made up to be a wedge race, mm. you know? So if we think about divide and conquer, which is what led to things like the black identity, right? Is white indentured servants teamed up with black slaves to try to overthrow the elite. And then the white indentured servants were arbitrarily given power and property because of the color of their skin. That's how race started in the US. And so I've always thought of the race piece tied to money, right? And so when it comes to Asian Americans, I guess the short end or not as so eloquent way of saying this is, so the stereotypes that were smart, okay? It comes from a legal like stature that only allowed smart Asians into this country. Like you had to have a professional degree to mm -hmm. immigrate into this country. So literally they are smart because they have degrees. The messed up part about it is those degrees were never honored. So that's why you see how like these stories of like South Asian taxi drivers or like these Korean like shop owners, they're literally have like MDs and like high engineering degrees, but our system won't recognize it. Plus the language barrier. So then they're doing these kind of jobs instead. Mm -hmm. So, but then that story is then used to tell black folks is like, look, they can do it. Why can't you? undermining the fact that a lot of Asian Americans at the start had educational opportunities. They had educational social capital. That's why they push their kids to school. They know that they have that social capital. Mm -hmm. So Asian American identity to me has always been a struggle because it's literally been created to, to, to wedge, right? Like stuff that's going on. I mean, people have heard the whole concept of the model minority. And a lot of Asians actually internalize that, you know, people that just voted against a lot of the measures around affirmative action, this stuff is still happening today. Something that would really help black and brown folks, Asians voted down, right? Not understanding our own history of how we were in, brought into this country. Mm. Uh, so yeah, that's why I politically really identify as Asian American to know that like the historical legacies of the US and how they've created like this arbitrary category, not realizing the diversity of the Asian American community and actually how much infighting that happens too is, is sort of moot, right? So yeah, Asian American is like a political identity for me, not like a racial one. Yeah, it just, it sucks, right? And, and, and to be honest with you, coming into DE and I work, I sometimes wonder if I'm hired because people think I'm a model minority. Mm -hmm. So I'll probably do diversity work the white way because I'm white, you know? And then they get me and then they realize that like, holy crap, she's been mostly raised by black mentors and she's like a hardcore anti-racist, you know? Like I don't think I'll get jobs, honestly, because they think about diversity. They don't always think about Asian, right? And even so, I'm worried that they're thinking about it in the wrong ways, you know, to do this work. Yeah. Like I'll be timid and polite about it. <laughs> Which is so wrong. Talk about white. Talk about white.
complicit with whiteness, not just white people. Yeah. You know? And I think that's where I think sometimes people think it's like a bad thing, right? Like to call someone white. Like I'm like, no, anyone can be complicit with this. Uh, just, just white folks. That's how actually strongly built it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is what I worry about this like DEI movement is right. like, we're trying to make it like accessible so we can do it. But sometimes that simplification really undermines the complexity of what it is. And that's also something that, you know, I've been trying to really struggle with, like this urgency for solution, right? That's actually a white kind of supremacist like behavior, right? Like, that's one thing I learned a lot actually doing Native American kind of research was like, the product doesn't always matter. Mm-hmm. You know, like it doesn't, the process is actually more important. We are so used to these beautifully wrapped packages, you know, this checklist, this feeling of accomplishment, you know, and what those do is they do contribute to um, things like competition, you know, and how do we measure ourselves, you know, not only from our own perfectionism, but also other people, you know, I've seen that a lot in the women's, um, white women um, in their anti-racist work, it's like, well, I'm a little bit more woke than they are, you know, and it's like, (laughs) it's not really how it works. It's not linear and you can be put back in your place real fast. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like allyship isn't self-determined, right? <laughs> like ever. So you can always, be, and I've been in those places where it's, I've been put back. I'm like, oh, wow, I really messed up. You yeah. Know? That's actually where I think diversity of work needs to go is like, can you recover? I don't care if you're like perfect because I think I get often misperceived as like the PC police, right? Like, yeah, just be politically correct. Just tell me all the things like I shouldn't say. Yeah. And I keep telling folks, I'm like, I don't care if you say them. I just need to know, I need to know that you understand what it means, right? And also if you do say it, it's okay because it's going to happen. How do you recover? I think that's like the true diversity work is like, how do you recover when you make a mistake? It goes back to that binary thing that you have, right? There's like a right way and a wrong way. No, there isn't. It's just a very complex thing. And I think most people, when they come to diversity work, it's just like, you just understand the context of what you're doing this in and what it means. And if you understand that, then you, you can, you can, what you said, be accountable to what it also may mean for other people. Right. So yeah, yeah, that was a hard one for people in my own experience. Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of women of color in my life, Mm -hmm. but I feel like some more common alignments I have seen actually have been between Native American women and Asian American women. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, like, I don't know why that is. Yeah. Uh, My own theory around it is what I sort of like touched upon with you is like around like this invisible minority piece. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I think it may be that, but I'm not sure, (laughs) but I, I wonder if there, even though I know our experiences are vastly different, the constructs of the way that our identities have been formed have some similarities, right? So like to the audience, like for example, when I mean like Eric and I may share more invisible minorities because Eric already touched upon one thing about Native Americans being so decimated that they're not in our history and they're being seen as something of the past. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to data wise, they're barely like a percentage. So they're not even seen in the data either. So that renders them invisible. What renders Asian Americans invisible is like this whole alignment with whiteness, right? We don't speak up because we do come from a lot of countries where speaking up was a life or death situation or that there's so many of us in a certain place that we're not really seen as a minority. So, yeah, yeah, those those are some things I always wonder in terms of also thinking about being an ally to others or an accomplice Mm -hmm. and a co-conspirator of, you know, yes, we're trying to do these for other people, but in the end, we're all trying to do this for ourselves, right? Like if we can all live authentically in our own like skin, everyone's gonna be better for it. <laughs> so, I like that you touched on like especially with data in Native Americans. Um, you know, recently within the election, you know, on CNN, 
had labeled um, Asian, black, white, and then something else. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there's something else. <laughs> Terrible. It's like, okay, that's just like another form of erasure, you know, of like this, you know, this, yeah, this colonized viewpoint of how, how we're treated in society. That was a really great metaphor, I feel like, you know, and I think about bringing it into the fishing context, there's a survey that comes out every year from, I think it's like Take Me Fishing or Outdoor Industry. Um, they have always, since the beginning of the survey, for don't include Native Americans. And I find that interesting because historically, like, natives in the U.S., like, we've been fishing for, for sustenance for so long, you know, and it's interesting because this whole report has saltwater fishing, um, not only, it's not just fly fishing, it's, like, all different types, and it's, like, doesn't even include the origins within our country of, you know, we think about the Pacific Northwest and how they still fish for sustenance, you know, there's a small group in Oregon that still gets access mm -hmm. to to their water but at the same time we're just like completely erased from all the data you know we're definitely categorized as the other and anyway <laughs> no that's like a whole other conversation because i actually looked into this because i was like why do we do this and it has to do with some statistical theories and also disclosure mm -hmm. so there are some worries about doing surveys because then you out the person that took it when it's supposed to be like anonymous that's partly one which i still think is like a bullshit answer mm -hmm. and then like st statistical significance mm -hmm. is like the other thing that i always hear but that's also why i think you know people need to diversify the way that they do surveys like qualitative surveys are important right? <laughs> like you can't just put everything in numbers you just can't so Not it's easy but all would be a lot harder i'm actually really curious i wrote this down what is like what do you think of the term bipoc which is black indigenous and people of color I mean, given that I've been in this industry for like 15 years and the changes of how identity mutates and is, I mean, I think the way that I sit with it is it's contextual to the time, right? So this actually goes back to the other thing too. By no means am I saying like us being invisible is take, trying to take away from anything else that's happening right now, mm -hmm. right? Particularly with like sort of the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement. I just hope that industries that are trying to work towards this fully understand like this isn't the end. Right? Like, this is like, it was such a dire cry from like one community to like end this. And I will also pay respect that black folk have really paved the way for other communities. And I hope that that is also respected, you know, when it comes to this. So I'm okay with the term BIPOC, because I think there's like a recentering of some communities that have been rendered invisible. I will say it will probably change again, you know, in the future. So I think the term is needed for right now in this current moment. Um, I know some people have critiques of like, why are we like pulling this per like this group out right now? Like, why do they feel like they're so important that they deserve like their own like one letter capitalization? It's literally to folks, it's like one letter, okay? <laughs> so for me, it's just contextual to the time. Like language changes, everything changes, and this is what we need right now. So if that helps, then I'm down with the cause, you know, for it. Yeah. How about you? How do you feel about the BIPOC? I've been giving it some thought over the last like couple months and I've removed BIPOC out of my language. I do like, it is easy to just like slip in. Um, but you know, what I'm really getting at is all people of color and just really have not inclusive lens. So I'm not saying that, um, you know, hearing you say like, oh, it's okay. So I'm going to assume all Asian people think that it's yeah, okay. Sure. <laughs> and so yeah. I don't want people to think that like BIPOC is wrong, you know, but it is, Language is fun, it's fluid, and you're right, it is good for the time, you know, right now. And so, yeah, just thank you for sharing your perspective. And, you know, that's literally my perspective, and I'm sure that'll evolve 
um, you know, in the next couple months or next year. So, <laughs> and I also appreciate that you and I can have that conversation, right? Because I think oftentimes when it comes to this diversity work, everyone's all like, what's the right thing to say versus what's the wrong thing to say? Because even think about the term Latinx right now, right? That's a whole nother conversation that to be honest with you, I don't think I have the allowances to comment on, right? It's not my community, right? So that's for that community to decide. For me, like, I feel like you can also use these interchangeably, right? Like, you can say BIPOC, but you can also say Asian American, like, xenophobia towards, like, this isn't like an and or it, it's like an and yes, right? Like, what you always say, like, it's never, like, exclusive of the other thing. Yeah. So, but again, for me, maybe it's like the practitioner in me, like, if the utility works, like, let's go with it. But I'm not always sure that the tool lasts for the test of time, right? Like, some way I will get it. But I do appreciate you uplifting the stuff like Asian Americans are going through because they are going through a lot, you know, with this. Like the one thing that I've that like drives me like bonkers is the fact that like even as bad as this pandemic has been, people are still turning down healthcare from Asian Americans because of the xenophobia. But they make up the majority of our healthcare base. Right. So what are you gonna do? Like you don't want this Asian doctor because you're xenophobic? Well, good luck because the majority of our industry is made this way. And what are you trying to say? Like, just because they're race, they can't be your doctor or your caregiver. That's the stuff that like drives me insane. Like, your yeah. reason is so bad that you're willing to die. <laughs> like, I'm like, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. All right. No, thank you for triggering it. I'm gonna move into these comments on Instagram. So, um, oh my god. It was so good and so hard. <laughs> no, yeah. So Bighorn Blaine, um, who's a guy in Thermop, and I got to meet him in Lander once, and then we just connected on Instagram. Um, so he says, anti-settlerism, not so sure about that. As an enrolled Native American, Rosebud Lakota, and a fifth-generation rancher slash outfitter whose white ancestors settled in the Wind River Valley in the 1800s, I'm concerned about how much um, reparations I owe myself. I do love the last line of this because I think it like cinched it for me yeah. um, in terms of like Bighorn Blaine's like understanding of this stuff yeah. because it is really that like this like struggle that he's talking about or she or they are talking about like I think that's that's the heart of it right yeah. like it's so complex and like it's also we still live in a capitalistic world like it's hard to undo all of this to be yeah. honest because like even as much as I want to say let's do away with this all like, yeah we're all benefiting from it. We're all benefiting from it in some way. More, some others more than others, but you know, so I don't know if I have an answer to this. I just really appreciate that complexity of the answer. And I think, you know, for me as non-native, I have a hard time also commenting on it because this is also your experience. But I, I will say just some of the things that I have, read around it, which I encourage you to read if you feel like it would inform your own question. Um, I do really appreciate some of the conversations I think Native American scholars are having around this, you yeah. know, and what's been saying for other people. But again, you know, scholarship is also very theoretical and conceptual, and it's actually really hard to manifest in real life, you know, like in practice at times. All right, so from She Can Fly, which is um, Marco, um, I'm still learning and trying to accurately educate myself around this history and dynamic. But according to what I know about my family's history and Okinawan history. Okinawan, yeah, that's like a pretty deep history too. There's a lot of oppression that Okinawans have faced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm having a hard time piecing together the settler colonism existence here. <laughs> 
We are an indigenous people that were displaced by the destruction of our culture and economy by Japanese colonization and today. Even in the U.S., the only place you can find the remnants of Ikinoan history and lingering cultural documentation is including, sorry, is including Japanese and labeled at Japanese. So I'm curious to see if once again, Okinawans are clumped into the Japanese label again. Similar issues with Latinxao, Latino um, labels and histories. Yeah, I think I sort of touched upon this when I said, like, by no means am I an expert on this, but also the level of what the lens I'm looking at this through, right? So, yeah. like, for me, like, I'm really looking through this through the U.S. context. Mm -hmm. The Okinawans have faced so much oppression through sort of Japanese occupation, and that's like a very, very real history. I think in some ways there's no justice I can do to answering this question, but I do encourage actually looking at the Asian settler colonialism book that I'll, I'll send Erica because they actually do talk about Okinawan um, oppression that they have faced and what it means actually, you know, actually in the um, decolonizing as a metaphor, they do state claim that immigrants aren't settlers, but then a bunch of Asian scholars came in and were like, wait, 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 no, 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 we can be, we can be complicit with this, right? Like this, like settlerism. So, you know, when I talk about anti-settlerism, it's not like trying to place a noun on someone, right? It's about complicity with systems that we can potentially benefit from and being aware of it. Mm -hmm. So that would be what I would say. Um, I'm not trying to label anyone as an anti, like as a colonizer or settler. It's just that what do we, what, what access do we get by being complicit with that is what, where I'm challenging you all to think more about. Right. Um, but yeah, I do not know enough on terms of that because I am not Okinawan or Japanese, but I think that book does try to approach it from a historical lens that may be useful. So like props to you knowing like this much around your history and understanding because I think that's also a detriment of like racism and oppression, right? It erases our own history. So like props on like knowing that about your own family because that I think is a story that often always gets erased, you know, particularly Asian American communities, I feel like. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, I've so appreciated your time again. And is there anything that you want to kind of close out with? I kind of had like this. Um, I know that like people love like, what can I do? <laughs> but I think we've already given some resources, right? Like some, just do some reading, do some reflecting, you know, really kind of stepping back to your own identity. Would you add anything else to kind of like round out our conversation for listeners? Yeah, like I feel like for my industry in terms of education and for all the college graduates that are listening, find ways to interact with your alma mater that do actually give space and take back things and gives it to folks of color or marginalized communities that are at your college campuses because those are microcosms of our society and actually you can have some pretty impactful change in those kind of spaces um, because they literally are trying to create communities for all students to go. So some ways to think about this, maybe you want to contribute to a scholarship that supports like black folk on your campus. You know, maybe you want to gather alumni to like want to rename something on campus that may not be named after someone that's appropriate at this time, mm -hmm. or just even asking those questions when you get that call to say like give money, like ask them about what they're doing around diversity you know, at the university. That stuff is very necessary because it gets all fed up to leadership that cares about their alumni and where they give. So yeah. that's a very tangible way you can do it in, in the area of higher education. Wow, that is very beautiful. And I never really thought about that. I typically ignore the, give me money. 
I know I say like, hey, do you know what's going on with the multicultural center? Do they have enough money? And if they can't answer me, I'm like, I won't donate until you figure this out and then come help me. <laughs> I will. Yeah, and they're always looking for funding and they do listen to alumni. That's one thing that I really recognize um, in, in institutions. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I'm definitely going to start challenging that. Yeah, the main projects I actually am working are around actually philanthropy and people of color. So if anyone wants to chat about that, yeah. Um, I think that's a new wave and I'll position it this way. I think community wealth is generated amongst our communities, but it doesn't always stay. And mm -hmm. um, so for folks that maybe think about giving back to the communities that they come from in very monetary ways so that intergenerational wealth can be built. And yeah. um, so if folks want to talk about that, that's a different, that's the way I'm trying to disrupt this stuff. Keep on fishing and I'm excited to see your, first catch um <laughs> so it's gonna happen it's gonna it's happen definitely normal to catch more logs so keep at it <laughs> all right thanks so much um we'll talk to you soon <laughs> bye i'm incredibly thankful for patricia's knowledge and perspective working as a diversity practitioner and as a new angler you can follow her on instagram at patricia c nguyen that's at p-a-t-r-i-c-i-a C-N-G-U-Y-E-N. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Head over to awkwardangler.com for show notes and resources. You can send appreciations by subscribing, sharing with a friend, rating the podcast, or Venmo at Awkward Angler. Special thanks to my brown folks fishing family for your support. I'm Erica Nelson, inviting you to be an awkward angler. See you next week. <laughs>